Welcome to River of Life's Wednesday Night Podcast with Derek Gray. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to visit River of Life Church this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Visit rolcrawfordville.com for service times and directions. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Now, let's join Derek as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, good evening, everybody. We got seven o'clock, so we'll go ahead and get started. If you got your Bibles, uh, you want to follow along, I would encourage you to do that. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 28 through 30. Uh, This is a continuation of last week's lesson, All Things for Good, and this will be uh, part two. And uh, so we'll start in verse 28, and then we'll make our way into verses 29 and 30. So let's read verse 28. Uh, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, last week we spent most of our time on this word called. Okay, If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and, and, and watch it online. And what we saw was that when Paul is talking specifically to Christians... And he uses the word called and says you are called. He is not talking about some general call that goes out to everybody. He's not talking about a a mass mailing, if you will, that goes out to everyone. In fact, in 2 Timothy uh, 1, 9 and 10, he says it like this, talking about God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. See, that word holy means set apart for God's purposes. God has called us with a different calling, a holy calling. And this calling originates not in our works. It doesn't come to us because of our race or our gender or our nationality or our ethnicity or our family or how rich we are or how pretty we are or how good we are. None of those things. It's got nothing to do with us. It says it originates in God's own purposes and in His grace. And oh yeah, by the way, it was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now, what we saw last week and what we focused on and what we wanted you to see is that the call of God to salvation originates in God's purpose, not ours. All right. Now, tonight, we're going to see something else. We're going to see that the same God that purposes to call us to salvation is the same God who purposes that all things in your life will work out for good. So God doesn't just call you to salvation with a purpose. He is involved in every aspect of your life with a purpose, making sure that everything you go through is working out for your good. Now, tonight we're going to look at some biblical examples to show how this all works, okay? And um, I just want you to get a good feel of what it means for God to work in someone's life so that all things turn out for good. And this is the question that we're going to try to answer, okay? It's a big question. Does God just use the bad things that happen to you or does God purpose the bad things that happen to you? In other words, let me make sure you understand what I'm saying. Do, do bad things come into your life and, and God somehow had, he was asleep or he just forgot about you 
or somehow the devil was stronger than him. But somehow this thing comes into your life that God has no control over. And somehow God, being God, just swoops in and makes lemonade out of lemons. Is that what Paul means when he says that he works all things according to the purposes of his will? Or does God actually purpose those bad things in your life? That is a huge question. And that makes, I can't tell you how relevant that is to your daily life. So tonight, we're going to look at that question. I'm going to look at some examples, okay, from Scripture. And we're going to look at this specific question. Now, we're going to start with a nation, and then we'll work down to individual people. I'm going to start with the example of the Assyrians. Now, in Isaiah chapters 8 through 10, um, if you go back and read it, the nation of Israel has just gone off the rails, Man, they're practicing idolatry. They're, 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 they're sacrificing their babies to, to Molech. I mean, they're, they're just... Injustice is running rampant. They're, they're just going off the rails, okay? And God has told them again and again and again that they need to stop, that they need to repent or judgment's coming, but they will not listen. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah uh, and his wife have a baby, And God tells Isaiah, before that baby is old enough to call you mama and daddy, the Assyrians are going to come. They're going to come. And so the Assyrians do come. In Isaiah chapter 10, I want you to read this. This is the word of God, him speaking. He says this, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Now, what I want you to see here is the Assyrians are literally doing what God wants them to do. Notice what he says. I send them. I dispatch them. They are the, the, uh, what does he say, the club of my wrath, the rod of my anger. But I want you to read the first four words with me. Woe to the Assyrians. Now, I read that, and I'm like, well, now, wait a minute, God. How, how can you say that? They're doing what you want them to do, right? They are dispatching judgment against Israel. Why in the world would you say, woe to the Assyrian? We'll read on. It says this. God says, but this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. So what you've got here is you've got this nation of Assyria and the king who they don't, God is not even in their mind. He, he's not, he doesn't even enter into the equation. They want to go into Israel, and they want to kill, and they want to steal, and they want to rob, and they want to destroy, and they're greedy, and they want to destroy these nations and enhance their own empire. God's not even in the equation for them. Yet the Bible says, God says, I send them. I dispatch them. And by the way, when it's all said and done, God is going to punish The Assyrians. Why? Well, let's read verses 12 through 13. When the Lord has finished all His work against Mount Zion in Jerusalem, He will say, say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For He says, By my hand I have done this. By my wisdom I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. I subdued their kings. Now here is this... This is an amazing truth. It really is amazing. Here you've got these men 
who are doing exactly what they want to do. They are sinning. Everybody with me? Nobody's making them do anything. But yet, they are fulfilling the purposes of God. Let's move on to the story of Joseph. We all know, probably, for those of you that have been in church a long time, know the story of Joseph. Joseph uh, had uh, 11 brothers. He was the uh, second to the youngest. His dad had four wives. His uh, favorite wife was a, a lady named Rachel. And she was barren for many years, and she finally had this boy named Joseph. And he was his daddy's favorite. And his daddy didn't care if everybody knew it. And his brothers knew it. His daddy would give him these uh, gifts, like this coat of many colors and all this stuff. And it didn't help that Joseph, he didn't quite see what was going on. In fact, one day he had a dream, and he told his brothers, Hey, I had a dream, and in my dream you bowed down to me. So the time came when his brothers just hated his guts, and they were jealous of him. And the time came when they were actually off at a place called Shechem, and their daddy wasn't around, and they actually took him and they threw him in a pit. They said, you know, we've had enough of this coat, had enough of your bragging, we're sick of you. They threw him in a pit. And some of the brothers wanted to kill him, wanted to murder him. And, and one, of the, one of the older brothers says, no, man, we can't, we can't do that. And so they were sitting around deciding what to do, and these slave traders came by on their way to Egypt, and they said, hey, i got an idea. Let's sell him to these slave traders. And that's what they did. And then they took his coat, they killed an animal, poured blood on his coat, and went to his daddy and said, animal got him, he's dead. Now, let me say this. If you know the end of the story, you know that Joseph has to go to Egypt, right? You're telling me God didn't have any other way to get him there? All this, I mean, his brothers are hating him, they're jealous of him, they're selling him into slavery, they're throwing him in a pit. They're doing exactly what they want to do, and Joseph ends up in Egypt. So let's move on. He is sold to a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of the guard of the Pharaoh. He was like the head of the secret service. And uh, he immediately saw... By the way, Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. And this Potiphar immediately recognizes in this kid, he's good-looking, he's handsome, but he has got these crazy managerial skills. I mean, he can just... He, he's, he's got like the gift of administration, man. He can administer anything. And so Potiphar recognizes this and basically just puts him over his whole house. And, and Joseph is just running everything. And there comes a day where he finds himself alone with Potiphar's wife and she makes a move on him. Now, Joseph is a righteous man, and so he says, I, I'm not going to do this, and he literally runs out of the house, leaves his robe in her hand. Potiphar comes home. She's angry because he's rejected her. She tells Potiphar, he tried to rape me, and Potiphar has Joseph thrown in prison. Now, let's stop right there. Joseph was already in Egypt. In fact, he was, at, he was one step from the Pharaoh's house, wasn't he? I mean, I could have easily envisioned Potiphar talking to Pharaoh and saying, man, I got this guy here, you can't believe how good he is. And Pharaoh says, well, let me hire him. And he would have easily been at that position, but no. Instead, he's accused of something he didn't do. And for doing the right thing, he's thrown in prison. And my thing is, what's the point? That just seems pointless to me. But let's move on. So he gets over to the jail... And he's in the jail, and the jailer sees the same thing that Potiphar did. Man, this kid has got crazy administration skills, so 
He just puts Joseph in charge of the whole prison. So he's running everything. It just so happens that Pharaoh's butler was in prison because he'd done something to tick Pharaoh off, and so he's in prison, and he has a dream. And Joseph interprets that butler's dream, and he said, this is the interpretation. One day, Pharaoh is going to restore you to his house. And Joseph says, when he does, will you remember me? Will you tell Pharaoh that I'm not, I'm not, I shouldn't be here? And the butler says, yeah, sure enough. Pharaoh reaches out, pulls the, uh, the butler back into his house, and the butler pl- promptly, completely forgets about Joseph. And he languishes in prison for two more years. Two more years, just sitting in prison doing absolutely nothing. Finally, after 13 years, from the day he's 30 years old, he was sold into slavery when he was 17. At 30 years old, finally, in prison, something happens. And by the way, has anything been working out for good? Would you say? I mean, it don't seem like it, does it? So here we are after 13 years, Pharaoh has a dream. And he needs somebody to interpret it. And finally, this dumb butler remembers, hey, I know a guy. So they pull Joseph out of prison, and he interprets the dream. And this is the interpretation. You're going to have seven good years, and you're going to have seven really bad years of famine. And the Pharaoh says, well, hey, you, you run. I'm going to let you run it. So you get everything prepared. So literally, he takes him from prison and makes him a vice president or a prime minister, whatever you want to say. And so he's in, he gets start getting ready. Now listen, all this time, I don't want you to forget about his daddy. Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery, and his daddy was told he was dead. He's uh, 30 years old when he becomes vice president of, um, uh, of Egypt. Seven more years go by while he's getting all the, the grain stores up. Two more years go by before the famine gets so bad that his brothers have to come to Egypt to buy food. That's 22 years that his daddy thinks he's dead. 22 years. His dad thinks his son is, is dead. He's mourning his son. Now, here's the thing about this story. The good thing about it is that we have commentary in the Bible. Because I'm looking at some of this stuff, and I'm just thinking, why? What's the point of all this? But we have commentary. We have Joseph's words, which are inspired in Scripture by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to read what he says. Genesis 45, 7. He says this to his brothers when they have to come to Egypt to buy food. He says... God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. I want you to go back, if you will. By the way, Abraham is Joseph's great-grandfather. And you remember what God said to Abraham? He said, look at the stars, look at the sand of the sea. If you can count those things, he said, that's how many descendants you'll have. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And We're all the way down to Joseph, and they have a big clan, right? A lot of brothers, a lot of kids. They're a big clan, but there's a famine coming that's about to wipe families off the face of the earth. And he says, God sent me before you not just to to, to, uh, uh, preserve a family, but to preserve a promise. Now, he uses the word God sent me, but that's, let's be honest, that can be ambiguous. What does that mean? Is God just using the things that happened to Joseph? Or did God purpose those things? Well, let's look at Genesis 50, verse 20. Almost at the end of the book, Joseph is talking to his brothers, and he says this, As for you, you meant it for evil. That word meant means you purposed it for evil. You hated me. You were jealous of me. 
You threw me in that pit. You sold me into slavery. You lied to my dad. And you hated me. And you meant everything you did for evil. That was your purpose. But then he says this. But God, what does it say? Meant it for good. It's no accident, folks. God purposed it for good. By the way, I love the end of this verse. Notice what it says. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. By the way, notice not only did this turn out good for Joseph and Joseph's family, but how many other unbelievers were able to come to Egypt and buy food? How many other families that would have been wiped out were able to be preserved because of the things that God did to bring Joseph to that place? See, it wasn't just God's not just making lemonade out of lemons. God meant it for good. So God is not, in this case, not just watching evil with no design and no plan and no purpose, and then He just rushes in and says, hey, let me make good out of this. No. No, God meant it for good. Let's look at the example of Job. We all know the story of Job. Some of the things he went through. He lost his property. He lost his money. He lost his... Uh, uh, children, he lost his health. He had friends that was accusing him of sin. He had a wife that told him to curse God and die. And and by the way, Satan is doing all of this to him. Satan means evil against him. Job said this in Job one twenty one to twenty two: The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Wait a minute, Job. Don't say that. That was Satan that was doing all that stuff to you. That that's don't say that. But notice what the Bible says. In all this, Job did not sin, and he did not charge God with wrong. You see, what Job is saying, it says, no matter what happened to me, my God is in control. And he says, you're right. You're exactly right. How about Paul? Paul, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells a story about going to heaven. And he, had, he went to heaven. He literally went to heaven. He says... I don't know if I was in my body. I don't know if I was out of my body. I don't know. But I went up there and I saw things. By the way, let me just contrast this for you. Have you noticed a lot of people seem to be going to heaven these days? And some of them even go to hell. And for some reason, they all come back and write a book. Have you noticed that? Paul said, when he got back, he said, I can't tell you what I saw. I was told not to breathe a word of what I saw up there. Everybody else just comes back and is telling all this stuff. And Paul says, I can't, I can't tell you. Now, here's the thing. Paul goes to heaven. Now, let's be honest. If, if one of us really got to heaven and saw that revelation, wouldn't it be kind of hard not to be conceited? I mean, you've been given something nobody else has been given. You have to be able to, You're going to look at yourself and think, <laughs> yeah, right here. I'm the man, right? God loves me. I'm special. Now, watch what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, this is some kind of flesh thing, and we know it's a demonic presence, a messenger of Satan that he was given. And by the way, it came from God. Now, you may say to me, well, how do you know it came from God? Because look at the purpose of it. Its purpose was to keep me from becoming conceited. Folks, Satan is not interested at all in keeping you from becoming conceited. Remember the Assyrian? Why was he judged? Because of the pride of his heart, the haughty look in his eyes. 
It's only God that wants to keep pride out of your heart. It's only God that wants to keep you from becoming conceited. That means that this messenger of Satan was given to Paul by God for his good. Now, what was the good? Well, let's read. Three times Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, man, I love this part. Remember his problem? He was becoming conceited, boasting in himself. Look at me. Look how great I am. God sends this messenger of Satan on the other side. Paul's now boasting, but notice what he's boasting in. I boast in my weaknesses. See the good that came out of that? By the way, 2,000 years later, how many of us are still quoting Paul's words, in my weakness, I am strong. You talk about good coming out of something, God's not just sitting back, watching things, thinking, boy, i got to rush in there and make lemonade out of lemons. No. No, God don't work that way. Once again, we have this bad event in someone's life. But God's not just using it for good. God is purposing it for good. And those are two completely different things. One more example this, of course, is the life of Jesus. Acts 4, 27 to 28 says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Stop right there. Those are the people who tried him illegally at night. Those are the people who condemned an innocent man to death. Those are the people who spit on him and mocked him. And, 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 and pushed a crown of thorns on his head and whipped him with a cat of nine tails who pulled the beard out of his, out of his face. They're the ones who, who, who nailed the nails in his hand. And by the way, every single one of them were doing exactly what they wanted to do. Every single one of them. Nobody was making them do any of those things. Now listen what, what the Bible says. It says, those men were doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The New King James says it this way, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Boom. It blows my mind. How is it that men and women can be doing the very evil things they want to do? And at the same time, they are fulfilling God's purpose in your life. I don't know. I don't know how that is. I just know that the Bible teaches it over and over and over and over again. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that God is not just making lemonade out of lemons, but God is purposing these things in your life? Here's why. I could give you example after example of men and women in the Bible. I didn't even, I could have given you Esther. I could have given you Peter. I could have given you the Apostle John. I could have given you all these examples of men and women who went through evil things and yet came out on the other end and it worked out for their good. And here's the thing with hindsight, we can see that, right? We pick up the Bible and we read it and we get all these different. And by the way, I could probably go around this room and have people in here testify that there were bad things in your life, but, when it, it, but God purposed it for good. I could get testimonies in here. But here's the thing. When Jacob was in that prison, he couldn't see God's purposes. When Jacob, for 22 years, thought his son was dead, 
He couldn't see God's purposes. Job, when he sat on that ash heap and he had that piece of clay and he was busting those, those uh, sores open and the pus dripping out, you think he could see God's purposes? He had no idea of this cosmic drama that was being played out. He had no clue. See, here's the things, folks. Just knowing that it worked out for somebody else, that's never good enough when you're in the middle of it. It's not enough when you're in the midst of your trial to know, well, it worked out for him and it worked out for her. You need something more. You need something greater. Your faith has to be based not on the fact that it worked out for somebody else. Your faith needs to be based on who God is. It better be based on who my God is. Or else you... you, you it has to be. It has to be based on this promise that I serve a God who works all things for good to those who are called according to His promise. See, you may say, stand here to me and say tonight, Derek, does it really matter if I believe that, that God purposed this thing in my life or that God's just using this thing in my life? Does that really matter? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It matters. And here's why. Because if I believe that this thing happened to me outside of God's control, that somehow God was asleep, somehow God was too weak to stop it, somehow uh, Satan overcame... If I believe that somehow this thing came into my life outside of God's control, you tell me how you just flip a switch and all of a sudden believe in a sovereign God who's going to make good happen. Let me tell you, you won't. You won't. You can't flip that switch... You can't go from believing this in this God who's, who's too weak to do anything, this God who's asleep when you need Him, this God who somehow doesn't have control. You don't just flip a switch and one day believe, oh, I serve a sovereign God. You can't do that. You can't do that. Listen, thank God, thank God that my Bible does not teach that God is a God who can only make lemonade out of lemons. My God, there's nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. My Bible teaches that my God ordains and purposes what happens to me, and then He infallibly uses that according to His purposes for my good. Let me tell you, as I stand here today, I serve a God that is so supremely in charge of this world and in charge of my life that I know that whatever happens is ordained and purposed of Him and it will work out for my good. Listen, my hope as I stand here tonight is not that I won't suffer. My hope is not that somehow I'll escape the, the peril and the nakedness and the sword and the danger and all these things that Paul lists. That's not my hope. My hope is that my God will use those things for a purpose in my life for my good. That's my hope. And by the way, that should be the hope of all who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, are you ready? You ready to wade in a little deeper? They're building a building right there. I want you to look at that picture. They're actually digging a foundation for a building. Now, I want you to tell me, is the building that's going there going to be small? Think they're building the Publix there? Or is it going to be huge? 
going to be huge, isn't it? See, we can infer by looking at that picture that whatever they're building there is going to be really big because the foundation is extraordinarily large. Now, here's my point. When it comes to promises in the Bible, Romans 8.28 is a skyscraper. There's nothing bigger than Romans 8.28. It is incredible. I mean, think about it. What else can you add to Romans 28 to make it bigger? What brick can you put on top of it to make it any taller? You can't. All things means all things. It encompasses everything. You, you can't make it any bigger than it is. He says, Derek, all things in your life work out, but not just you, that's River of Life, and every other Christian in this county and in this state and in this country and in this world, billions upon billions of people. And he's working out, I mean, how big of a promise is that? Listen, when you, listen to me, folks. When you live inside the walls of Romans 8, 28, nothing can blow you over. Nothing can blow you over. But if you live outside of Romans 8, 28, you're living in a straw house. And let me tell you what's in that straw house. Worry and fear and anxiety and uncertainty. And let me tell you what else lives with those in order to deal with those. There's doctors and retirement plans and alcohol and drugs. So you've got to have all these things to soothe that worry and anxiety because you've got no idea what's going on around you. There's a thousand substitutes in that straw house for Romans 8.28. Let me tell you, inside the walls of 8, Romans 8.28, there's peace. And there's contentment. And there's security. And there's, there's maturity. And there's depth. And there's freedom. <laughs> Freedom in Rome's side of Romans 8.28. There is no promise in the world that surpasses this for you and I as we go through life. It is a staggering promise. Therefore, the foundation of that promise has to be extraordinarily large and extraordinarily deep. Let's go back to Romans 8.28. Paul says this, and we know, let me stop there, not hope, not think, not surmise, not believe. We know that all things work for good. So this is my question to Paul. Well, how do you know? How do you know, God? I mean, Paul, how can I have confidence that God is going to work all things for my good? The very next verse, 29, says, because. So what Paul is fixing to tell us in verses 29 and 30 is the foundation of this promise. And let me tell you, the promise is a skyscraper, which means this foundation has to be massively large. And here it is. Let's read it. For because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what Paul is saying. He says, this is how we know that all things are going to work for good. Because God foreknew you. And God predestined you. And God is going to work all things out for your good in order to conform you to the image of His Son. Now, basically what Paul says here is God ain't winging it. God ain't winging it. You see... 
Paul says there are three things that, Paul, that God has done for you, Christian. Two of them, by the way, are in the past. And one of them is happening right now at this moment. And they are this. Number one, God foreknew us. Number two, God predestined us. Number three, God is now in progress conforming us to the image of His Son. Now, there is no word in the Bible that intimidates Christians more than that word. My guess is, maybe a few of you, but my guess is you've never in your life sat in a service on a Sunday morning and heard a message on predestination. Maybe there's one or two of you. My guess is you've never heard a message. By the way, I'm not throwing shade at anybody else. I've been preaching for years. I've never preached on it. And there's a reason. The reason is because it is a difficult and complex and confusing subject. Now, let me say this. The word itself, it isn't confusing at all. It's not like it's some kind of uh, Greek word that's got 15 obscure meanings and it could mean this or it could... No, it's a simple, straightforward word. The word predestination means that your destiny has been predetermined. That's what it means. There's no argument about that. Your destination, where you're going to end up, has been predetermined. That is what that word means. What makes it complex and confusing is when you start talking about it, you, you open a door to a whole bunch of other questions that people just would rather not deal with. Well, what about free will? What about these people? What about this situation? A lot of questions once you open the door. So most people, to be really honest with you, just ignore it. I was one of those people for a long, long time. To be honest with you, for a long time I read my Bible, and if there were things that I didn't really agree with, and I'm ashamed to say this, but if there were things I didn't really agree with, I just moved them aside. I would read verses like, Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. I'd say, well, that doesn't seem fair. I'm just put that over here. Or verses where Jesus said, I told you the reason you can't believe, you cannot, I've told you you can't believe unless it is granted to you by the Father. Well, that that doesn't seem fair. (laughs) Just move that over here. Or verses like the one tonight, those whom he predestined, he called. The ones he called, he justified. The ones he justified, he glorified. Man, I don't don't know what that means, but I'm going to move it over here. So I found out one day, I looked at myself, and I was reading 70% of my Bible. And here's the problem with that. The Bible's God's revelation of himself. If you're only reading 70% of it, you only know 70% of God. And I realized one day, I don't know him. I don't know who he really is. And so I began to read, and I began to study. Now... Most of you tonight, when we get to this verse, this is your, probably, you're thinking, can we just skip this? (laughs) Can Can we just skip this subject and move on to something else? Do we have to really open this door? Um, I'm going to answer that a couple ways. Uh, Somebody might say like this to me. You might come to me and you might say, Derek, you know, I don't really care about decisions that were made by God 
millennia ago. I, you know, really, life is all about now, and I just don't see any point in us getting involved in these theological disputes and, and just opening up all these things and confusing people. And by the way, I completely understand that because I would have said exactly that at one time. Let me give you an example. Let's say somebody walks up to you tonight and offers you $10 million. Now, most of you think, well, that'd be awesome, but in reality, if you really think it through, this would be your first reaction. Whoa, where'd that come from? Who, who, where'd that come from? Are you, is somebody after, you know, if I take this, is somebody going to come get me? Are you with me? You would be skeptical, wouldn't you? By the way, if you're not skeptical, you got a problem. You should be skeptical if somebody tries to give you $10 million. But what if, what if that fellow reached in his pocket and he pulled out this old document, decades old, and you glance at it and it says, Last Will and Testament, and you, he says, Hey, man, you've got a great uncle, a great, great uncle that died 50 years ago, and this money's been in, in, in probate, and they've been looking, and they've searched, and they finally found, and you are the last remaining relative. This is your money free and clear. How many of you say, you know what, I don't really care about decisions that were made 50 years ago. <laughs> I, you know, I, life is really all about now. You know, there's no reason to get involved and get lawyers involved in disputes about wills and all that. You know, let's just skip it. Folks, that would be insane, wouldn't it? Well, let me tell you what's insane, and I promise you this that what God foreordained and what God foreknew and what God predestined is a million times more important than money. It is more relevant to your life today than $10 million could ever be. So I ask the question again, can we just skip it? Well, I understand not wanting to go into it, as I said, I did that for a long time, but we got a big problem. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Are you with me? See, I made a promise to God a long time ago when I started teaching, and this promise was this, God, I will always teach your, your word, even the parts that I don't like. I promise not to ever skip anything. So no, no, I can't just skip it. And here's one of the reasons why. Paul seems to infer that this is a really, really... <laughs> Really big deal. This week I, I, I read back through Romans 8. I was headed up on my computer and I was just reading the whole chapter again. And I got to verse 28 and Paul says this, and we know that all things work together for those who love God and those that are called according to His purpose. And he says, because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And then in verse 30 he says, for those whom He uh, uh, predestined, he called. The ones he called, he justifies. The one he justifies and glorified. And then if you've got your Bible, look at verse 31. Paul says, what do we say to those things? What do we say to the fact that God foreknew me before the foundation of the world? What do I say to the fact that God predestined me, that God called me, set his love on me? that God made me right with Him, and one day He's going to glorify me. And while I'm here, He's working all things together for my good. What do I say to those things? If God be for me, who can be against me? It's a big deal. Paul seems to think if that's true, 
then every single one of us should shout, if God be for me, who in the world could ever be against me? So, no, I'm not going to skip it. Now, let me give you one more reason. I'm not going to skip it, and then I'm getting close to the end. Several years ago, I preached a sermon on these verses, Romans 14. And these are some really cool verses. And in these verses, Paul is talking about how Christians can disagree. I want to read what he says. He says this, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then he says this, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Then he gives another example. One person esteems one day better than another, and and another esteems all days alike. So here's what Paul is saying. In your life, there are going to be decisions you have to make that you're not going to be able to go to the Bible and it says, do this and don't do that. Do you eat meat or do you eat only vegetables? Do you, do you observe this holiday or do you not observe that holiday? You're not going to find it in the Bible that says what to do. So Paul says that Christians, God-fearing Christians, are sometimes going to have different opinions. One person will say, yeah, man, meat is great. And the other person says, no, I'm going to be a vegetarian. One person says, I'm going, to, I'm going to celebrate Christmas. The other one says, I'm not going to celebrate Christmas, or whatever the case may be, right? Paul says, that's okay. That's okay. Be patient with one another. Don't condemn one another or despise one another. Have mercy on one another. But now, watch what he says at the end. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. See, what Paul wants you to see is just because it's okay to have different opinions, he says, I'm not saying that those things don't matter. Oh, they matter. You better be fully convinced in your own mind. Now listen, if it comes to what we eat and what holidays that we observe, and Paul says you need to be full, whatever you decide, be fully convinced in your own mind. See, what Paul is saying is whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do or whatever you think about predestination, it matters. Be fully... It's okay if we come to different decisions, right? It's okay. We can have mercy and be patient with one another. But don't ever think that it don't matter. uh, Paul doesn't allow that. Last thing, and then we'll close. All Christians must believe in predestination. You have to, because it's right there in the Bible. You don't have any choice. It said, (laughs) for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. The ones he predestined, he called. The ones he called, he made right with God. All Christians have to believe it, unless you're just going to tear that page out of your Bible. That's not at stake here. That's not what we're talking about and we'll be talking about next week. The question is not whether God predestines because God does. The question is, what did he use to make his choice? That's the question. The fact that he predestines, that's, it's just right there in the Bible. It's plain as, 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 the, day, as the nose on your face. You, you have to believe it. The question is, what criteria did he use to make that decision? Okay, and that we will talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, as always, God, we are uh, in the, I think, the greatest chapter in the Bible. Um, And there are some incredible truths in this book. 
But I'll also stand here as a human being and as a man, and I'll tell you, God, that my human mind struggles to understand how some of these things can be. Yet I believe them because they're in your word. In fact, God, I shouldn't be surprised because the Bible says you're able to do above anything I could ask or think. So why would it surprise me that there are things in here that blow my mind? Now, God, I ask you, Holy Spirit, that as we wade into this subject next week, that there will not be a spirit of confusion, but there will be a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of patience and a spirit of mercy as we wrestle with this uh, subject. We give you praise and glory for all you're going to do in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the River of Life podcast. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email at info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.